disappointed you wanted to keep going with that. <laughs> From a certain point of view, I understand Obi-Wan is a good guy. I, I got to call him out on this, okay? I would say, I, Obi-Wan, I don't know about you guys on Tatooine or Dagobah, but you know what we call that on Earth? Lying. It's called lying when you say something that's not true. We're going to talk about lying today because I've got information on many of you here and lies that you've been telling recently. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Don't get up and leave. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're, we're in, uh, before I jump in here, in your, in your worship folder is an outline for you to follow along and some fill-ins there and some of the verses from today. You'll want, to, you'll want to do that because um, what we're going to talk about today is breaking free from strongholds. Because whether you know it or not, you have things in your life, you have strongholds in your life that you're struggling with, that you're trying to get through, that you're trying to get out of, that you're trying to get away from, and, and they're just not working. We're going to talk about that today in, in, in uh, part six here. So... Uh, on your worship folder, it tells us, here's the kind of the big thing we're going to, the truth we're going to look at today is this. When you rehearse and believe a lie on repeat, that means you're doing it. It might have been days, weeks, months, years, decades. You're believing this thing. You've heard this thing. When you rehearse and believe a lie on repeat, you're in what the Bible calls a stronghold. You say, well, I don't think I am. I don't feel like I am. It doesn't matter. It's deceiving, and you can be in it and not know it. So you rehearse and believe a lie and repeat. You're in what the Bible calls a stronghold, and God gives you the power to break free. And it doesn't matter how long you've been stuck there. It doesn't matter how long you felt trapped there. It doesn't matter how much you felt like you were just a captive and there was nothing you could do about that. There is hope to be able to break free. I've actually kind of moved things around a, l a little bit in this series because I want to go back and look at something that we mentioned last week, a passage that we looked at last week. We just kind of skimmed over it, and I want to zero in on it today because I think we passed over it too quickly, and I think it's a big deal for, for many people. That passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Here's what it says. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. I want to remind you, we're talking in this series on spirit wars. We're talking about a spiritual battle, that everybody is in a spiritual battle. You say, well, I'm not. It's like, well, you are. You're just deceived and don't know it. And then it's even worse because you don't know what you're fighting or who you're fighting or how to fight it. We're all in the spiritual battle, but the weapons that we fight with are not the same weapons that the world has. You remember, we, we've talked about the fact that the Bible says... Um, we wrestle not. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And it talks about this unseen world. And the truth of that passage is, if it's flesh and blood, it's not the enemy. So our battle is not with other people. Our battle is a spiritual battle. And so the weapons we fight with, according to this verse, are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, these weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. That's a key that we're going to look at today. The strongholds in your life can be demolished. And he explains a little bit about what that is. Next verse, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Everything that's against what God is telling us. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. 
Because God, is, God has these things for us. And what we do is we have the opposite. We have something that's not um, the truth. It's a lie. And it may not be like uh, a horrible, total, exact lie. It may be a little bit of the truth mixed in with a little bit of the lie. And that's true for people who are followers of Jesus. And it's true for people who have not yet taken that step. You're still investigating the claims of Jesus. You're still checking them out and checking things out. It's true for everybody. Because the people who haven't claimed Jesus as Savior yet, they, they have these things, these, these preconceived things, these, these arguments and, and pretensions that have set themselves up against the knowledge of God. They're things that we tell people, did you know... I see you struggling with this. And did you know that you can be forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross? You can be free. You can have meaning and purpose in your life today and a living hope for the future. And we get so excited telling them that it goes like right over their head. And one of the reasons is because there are strongholds there for them and for all of us. And they're there because of the lies that we have believed and we have rehearsed on repeat over and over again. And that has to be broken through so that we can see the truth. The phrase divine power to demolish strongholds, I think is absolutely vital. And with many of the questions that I get, I think it's extremely important that just for today, we're going to slow down and we're going to look at a little more closely what that means. What does it mean? So I'm going to give you five things. They're, they're kind of sequential. Five things that have to do with breaking free from strongholds. And here's number one, the first thing. Captivity starts with a lie. It starts with a lie. And it may be, like I said, big, bold lie that's very clear and it's obviously a lie and you're just choosing to go with that. And it may be something that's subtle. It may be something that's deceptive. Sometimes it's something that you've done or believed for a long time on repeat. You've just, it's something that, yeah, I've heard this, it was told me. This is what I've rehearsed over and over again. And the captivity that you experience always starts with that lie. Sometimes it comes from our own flesh, from our own desires, from our own the natural instincts that aren't always lined up with, with God and with His Word. Sometimes it is spiritual or, or demonic in origin. It's suggested by the enemy. And you say, well, I never have the enemy suggest anything to me. I have nothing demonic in my life. When people tell me that, it's like, oh man, look out. Because the enemy is always whispering stuff to you. And you say, the enemy's never whispered anything to me. Yes, he has. You just don't recognize him. You know why? He's really good. He's been doing it for thousands of years. He can whisper something to you and mix just enough truth in it that it sounds good. And you, you, you buy it, you believe it. And often in our life, the things that are suggested to us are suggested by the enemy. He's using a close friend or relative to say something mixed with truth a little bit, but it's like, yeah, that sounds good. And before we know it, we're stuck in the middle of something. And we have this stronghold in our life and we can't get out of it. Sometimes it's a lie from our surrounding culture because that's what's happened in our culture. I don't know if you've noticed or not yet, but the world is not going the right direction. It's not getting better and better. And one of the things that's absolutely amazing is as it gets worse and worse, more people buy into it. And something that was so clear 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago is like pff, not even on the radar anymore. 
And it's been a subtle shift, a subtle slip, slip. And sometimes we start to believe a lie that the culture is feeding us because everybody else believes it. Just because everybody believes something doesn't make it right. What's right is what's right. But we believe that lie that's sold to us by the culture, and that's when the captivity starts. That's when the stronghold starts. That's when the trap starts. Sometimes it is something totally beyond your control. Sometimes it's, it's not your fault at all. But the enemy can still use that moment to grab a little foothold in your life. Maybe it's not something that you did, but he uses that opportunity to get that little foothold, to plant the seed of self-doubt, to start building that stronghold in your life. So it starts always with a lie. Captivity starts with a lie. Number two, the lie then becomes a foundation for a stronghold of lies. It always starts small. It always starts with some little thing that's probably mixed with a little bit of truth. But the enemy uses that then as he has a foundation to build on now. That's not true. This lie becomes the foundation for a stronghold of lies. What you need to understand is you are not responsible for the things done to you by others ever. You are not responsible for that. They're responsible for that. You don't have to suffer under that. You don't have to have that shape your life. You're not responsible for those things done to you. But you are responsible for what you believe about God, about yourself, about others. And sometimes what's done to us causes us to believe the wrong thing. It doesn't cause us. We make the choice to believe the wrong thing about God. Because something's happened in our life, God must not be good. And we believe the wrong thing about God. Or we believe the wrong thing about ourselves. Because of this lie that's been rehearsed. Or we believe the wrong thing about others. And we're responsible for that. We're responsible when we harden our heart towards God. When something is happening in our life that's not letting up. And we're praying and it's not changing. And we say, yeah, God must not care. He's not answering the way I think He should. As if what we think is the absolute correct answer always in all circumstances. As God chuckles in the background, we think if, if it's what I want, it must be right. And if God's not answering me, he's failed. And we harden our heart a little towards him. I'll let you in on a little secret. Some of you don't know this. God is God. You are not but we act like it. We think our way is the best way. And so when God doesn't do things our way, harden our hearts a little toward Him. We don't listen quite the same next time. We don't take that step that He wants us to take because we're responsible when we do that. We're responsible when we're the ones who are hurting others. When we're the ones making that choice that we think it's because this is my right, this is my freedom, I can do this, and we hurt somebody else. We had this discussion this week um, about rights because we live in a society that is driven by rights. I have the right. I have the right to do this. Julie's dad, my father-in-law, explained it to her in such a way that, that was, it was very clear. He said, there's not an unlimited number of rights. There's only a certain number of rights. 
And when you have a right, somebody else doesn't. Your right takes away somebody else's right. I'm going to pick on smokers for a minute. My, my goal is to offend everybody, so if you're not offended, Jeff, <laughs> relax. You will be. You can have the right to smoke. If you're in a car, you can say, it's my car, I have the right to smoke. You do. So you can do that. But if somebody else is in your car, they have now lost the right to breathe air that doesn't have smoke in it. You, you see how that works? That's a very small picture of a very big truth that works in every situation. When, when this person exercises this right, somebody else does not, is not able to exercise a right. And so when we do things that hurt others, we're responsible for that, even if we're exercising our rights. And so we have to be careful because the lies that we believe become a foundation for a stronghold of lies. And before we know it, we're in a place where we can't get out of it. It's a, it's a stronghold, it's a prison. Stronghold can be a positive thing. All throughout Scripture, the word stronghold is used as in um, the, the people of God. Somebody wanted to be safe and they had this place that they were safe. It was a stronghold and they could protect themselves against the enemy. And that's a positive thing. It's a good thing to have that kind of stronghold. But there's also the negative kind of stronghold that this gets built around us because of the lies and we can't get out. We can't do what we'd like to do. We can't have the freedom that we'd like to have. So captivity always starts with a lie, and the lie becomes a foundation for a stronghold of lies. And to start getting out of that, that's what number three is. Freedom, which is what we're looking for, freedom starts when we repent. Now when I say that word, repent, some people are like, yeah. Some people are like, oh, I hate that word. It's a word a lot of people don't like to hear. It's a word that one of the reasons people don't like to hear it is because it has been misused so often, especially by Christians. And they use it as a club. You're not doing what I think God says you should be doing. You need to repent. Did you know that in the Bible... When it talks about repentance, and it does many, many times, did you know that the overwhelming majority of times, by far the majority of times it talks about repentance, it's not talking to people who don't know Jesus. It's not talking to people who haven't made that decision yet. It's not talking to people who are far from God. It's not talking to people who haven't yet decided that Jesus is going to be their Lord and Savior. It's talking to Christians. The overwhelming majority of times repentance is brought up. It's talking to Christians. So I, I, wanna sh I just want to help you understand what that is so you don't think it's a bad word. Okay? In 2 Corinthians 7, it talks about this. It says this, uh, verse 10. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin. I want to stop there for just a moment. When we talk about repentance, what many people will think of is, I did something bad, and I, I did something wrong, and I'm going to feel bad. I'm going to feel sorrow. I'm going to feel bad about what I did. And that is part of it. But what I've discovered is that most people who say, I'm sorry, are not completing their thought. They're actually thinking, I'm sorry, I got caught. I'm sorry... I got busted. I'm sorry that you caught me doing that. That's what most people think. 
They're not repenting. They're feeling sorrow. They're feeling sorry. And it says the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin. And I want to stop there for a second because that phrase leads us away from sin is translating the word that many other translations will translate repentance. It's the word repentance because repentance literally means it leads us away from something. We turn from something to something else. That's repentance. It's saying wrong way. I'm going to turn from this. I'm going to turn this way and go the right way. That's what repentance is. And it says the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience results in repentance. It leads us away from sin and it results in salvation. There is no regret, the Bible says, for that kind of sorrow. You feel bad. You feel that grief. You feel sorry for something, but it never stops there. It leads us in the right direction to change and do the right thing. It says worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. People can feel sorry for something and have it not be true repentance. They feel sorrow. They feel sorry for something, but it's not godly sorrow. It's worldly sorrow. It doesn't have that turning from something to something else and it results in death. Let me give you a real good example of that. Two people hung out together for three and a half years, like every day for three and a half years. You've heard of these people. One of them is named Peter. One of them is named Judas. Judas did something bad at the end of that three and a half years. Peter and Judas and ten others walked with Jesus for three and a half years. At the end of that time, Judas sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, which is, that we, we don't, let's go, what does that mean? That's just the price, the average price of a common slave. He sold Jesus out. Met him in a garden, kissed him on a cheek. Jesus was arrested. Judas got his 30 pieces of silver. And then you know what happened? He felt sorry. He realized what he did was wrong. He felt sorrow. He went back to the temple, tried to give the money back, said, nope, done deal. So he just throws the money to them. That's 30 pieces of silver he throws back. And interestingly, when he did that, they realized, well, that's blood money. We can't do anything with that. And they went and they bought what was called a potter's field, a field where when, when, the bat, when the pots were bad that they were making, they would break them up and throw them. And with all that junk in the field, it was not good for anything. That actually fulfilled an 800-year-old prophecy when they did that. They didn't know they were doing that. But Judas felt so sorry that the Bible tells us he went out and hanged himself killed himself. That was not godly sorrow. That was not repentance. That didn't lead to life and salvation. It led to death. On the other hand, you have Peter, who also betrayed Jesus. Peter didn't do it one time. He did it three times. After he said, I'll never betray you, Lord. I'll die for you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. It's like, no way, until the first time. And then the second time. And it's interesting because when the third time came and Peter denied Jesus for the third time within a very short span of time that evening, it says immediately the rooster crowed. And he heard that. And it says he went out and wept bitterly. He felt that same sorrow. He felt that same grief for what he had done. He had made a bad choice. But you know what he did? 
he turned from that to Jesus. And Peter repented. And when Peter repented, he experienced God's grace. He was forgiven. He became one of the pillars in the church. Amazing things happened in the kingdom because of his repentance. That's godly repentance. So how do we repent? We all need to do this on a regular basis. Okay? And if you think you don't, you need to repent of that too. Okay? There is a pattern in Scripture. It's very simple. When Jesus speaks to us through John to the churches in Revelation, he tells us there's three steps. And I put the step numbers in the verse for you. This is not the verse numbers. These are the step numbers. In Revelation 2 and verse 5, it says this. Think about where you have fallen from. Number one. Think about where you have fallen from. And then number two, turn back. And then number three, do as you did at first. It's talking to people who had followed Jesus and screwed up. They had made the wrong choice. They had believed a lie. There had been a stronghold and they had made the wrong choice and they had fallen from that. And he says, think about where you've fallen from. Turn back and do as you did at first. So here's the three steps. Acknowledge and confess your sins and missteps. That's the first step. Think about where you've fallen from. You know what confession is? Confession is simply calling it what God calls it. When I confess my sins to God, I am simply saying, God, you're right. This thing, whatever I did, was sin. You're right. That's confession. And it says when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it never stops there. We acknowledge where we've made the wrong choices. We confess that. We confess those sins, those missteps. The second thing is we have to turn from that back to God. I can't stay doing what I'm doing and say, God, I'm sorry. I am going to do it again, (laughs) but I'm sorry. I feel sorry. God's not looking for the feeling. He's looking for the action. You feel that, that's fine. Acknowledge and confess. But then turn back to God from sin, which leads us to the third step. Live out the commitment to obedience that you've just made. That's that's really all repentance is. I acknowledge it. I confess it. I turn from it, and I turn to God. And I do what I did correctly before. Before I started doing the bad thing. Before I started believing the lie. Now, as many of you here know, that's not a once-for-all-time thing. There are many things in your life that you've done that for, and then you've done it again, and then you've done it again, and then you've done it again, and maybe the people around you are getting tired of hearing, I'm sorry for doing that. And they're beginning to think you're really not sorry for doing that. You say, but I was sorry, and I turned from that, and I turned to God, and I screwed up again. Remember this, captivity starts with a lie. The lie becomes a foundation for a stronghold of lies, but freedom starts when we repent. The fourth thing is freedom flourishes under grace. This is huge. I didn't grow up in a place that understood grace. They used the word a lot, but they didn't understand it. The church that I grew up in was scared to death 
of grace. They didn't want to extend grace because when you extend grace, somebody always burns you. When God extends us grace, we still sin. And so they didn't want to extend grace. They wanted to have, nope, here's the rules. Here's the laws. There is no grace here. Freedom does not flourish in that situation. It may have started because of the repentance, but it's going nowhere. It only flourishes under grace. And one of the big problems is we don't see God as a God of grace. Because many of us were burned by church. Many of us grew up in churches that were like that. Many of us had families like that where there wasn't grace. Maybe, maybe you're one that, that had the father that could not be pleased. There was never grace or mercy extended. That father could not be pleased. And no matter what you did, there was not a, well done. There was a, I've been getting C's all my life and I got a B. And you're all excited. And it's like, but you didn't get an A. And no matter what you did, it wasn't enough. And you've taken that and you've projected that onto your heavenly father. And I know way too many people that think God is sitting up there just waiting to put his thumb on us and say, yeah, I knew you were going to do that. Why didn't you do this? And we don't see him as a God of grace. Grace is dangerous. Because when grace is extended, we can sin again. And you know what God does? He stands there with open arms. And you say, I've, I've failed too many times. Say, so you cannot believe how far God's grace will extend. We talk about grace. We talk about mercy. Those are two different things. Here's, here's my definition that makes it easy to understand. Mercy is when you don't get something that you deserve. You did something bad. And what you deserve is this, but you don't get it. That's mercy. Grace is when you get something that you don't deserve. And God is, is, is completely merciful and completely full of grace. In fact, Jesus came to this earth to fully and perfectly represent God. Jesus was God, is God, in the flesh. Because before Jesus came, you couldn't see God, God's spirit. You try to picture God, you can't picture God. He's a spirit. But Jesus came. And Jesus came so that we could understand a little bit clearer who God is. He perfectly represented him. And what that means is whatever you see in Jesus is the truth about God. Whatever you see in him. And it tells us that Jesus came full of grace and truth. As Christians... We usually fall on one side or the other of that. The grace or the truth. Many times Christians will fall on the grace side and they won't even look at the truth side and sin is not that big an issue because there's always grace. That was what the church I was, grew up in was afraid of. So that you have the people on the other side that what's important is truth. It's truth. You are wrong. And they completely forget about grace. Churches are actually supposed to have a balance of grace and truth. I have some bad news. You will never have that balance. You should try. But you will never have that balance. That's one of the reasons why there's church. 
because it's full of people who lean a little bit truth, a little bit grace, and as a church, we can have a balance of grace and truth to the world around us. But it tells us in John 1, John 1 is all John's explanation of Jesus coming and, and showing God to us. It calls him the Word. Jesus was the Word come in the flesh. This is the Bible. This is the Word of God. Jesus is also the Word in the flesh. And in verse 14 of John 1, it says, the Word, that's Jesus, became a human being and full of grace and truth lived among us. That means, that, that does not mean Jesus had the perfect balance of grace and truth. It doesn't mean that. He was full of not only grace, but truth. It wasn't a balance of the two. It was both of them overflowing in his life. And it says, we saw his glory. The glory that he received as the Father's only Son out of the fullness of his grace. He has blessed us all, giving us one blessing after another. Jesus came to picture God for us, and Jesus came full of grace and truth, but out of the fullness of his grace, he blesses us. And he helps us to see that God is a God of grace. And when you start to understand who God really is, and you see him as, yes, the author of truth that sets you free, but also as the giver of grace that allows you to thrive, then you'll start to flourish in freedom. Because freedom flourishes under grace. When somebody comes to Jesus, the worst thing we can do is put a whole list of rules and regulations on them. And if you mess up here, God's not going to be happy. What we do is we accept people. We say this all the time here. We, we accept everybody. We love everybody. Because Jesus accepted everybody. We don't approve of everything everybody does. Because Jesus didn't approve of everything everybody does. I don't even approve of everything I do. Certainly not going to approve of everything you do. But we still accept people. And God begins to change us. We accept, we accept people because God accepted us, but he will never leave me like I am. He will always make me better. It's always a painful process. It is for me and it will be for you. But that's what he wants to do in our lives. And the way he does that is when grace is exercised. That's what grace is about. Freedom flourishes under grace. The fifth thing, though, too many people stop at the freedom comes from repentance. They stop there. It comes from that, the, the number three thing that when we repent. And they'll lean a little bit towards freedom flourishes under grace. But it doesn't stop there. We are a work in progress until Jesus comes back. And so number five, very important, freedom continues as we live by more truth. As we live by more truth. That means I'm free because I turned to Jesus. My sins were forgiven. My past was forgiven. I have meaning and purpose in my life today and a living hope for the future. And that freedom that I experience flourishes under God's grace as I fail and he welcomes me back. And I learn to repent and turn from those things and not do the same. I'm going to sin every day. My, my plan is not, not to do the same one over and over. <laughs> He's got a lot of work to do in me. But that freedom that I experience will flourish under grace. 
but it continues as we live by more truth. Because it's a process. We, we are supposed to be growing spiritually. If you're the same place you were last week, last month, last year, that's a problem. We need to be growing. John 8 says this. Jesus says, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. That's the word of God, the Bible. If you remain faithful to my teachings, he said, you are truly my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Because the truth is found not only in the word of God, it's found in the Son of God, who is the word. And as we hear from him, as we spend time with him, as we learn what it is to obey him more and more each day, grace will continue. Grace will continue to grow in our lives when we do that. When I came to Jesus, I grew up in a house that knew and loved Jesus, but there were so many weird things attached to it that I just didn't catch it. And it wasn't until that summer that I had graduated from high school and I had gone to that camp I've told you about many times that God got a hold of my life and said, stop. It's time to stop. Stop being a phony. Stop trusting in everything else. It's time to turn to me and say yes. And that's what I did. And from that time, what I promised him was, I want to know you better and love you more every day. And God said, you know how to do that? Spend time with me every day. So that's what I've done for 43 years. I spent time with Jesus every day. Sometimes it's, it's 30 seconds and sometimes it's two hours. It depends on how bad things are going that day. But I spend time in God's word, hearing from him, learning those things. And it's not the thing that I read today that's going to necessarily change my life today. Many times it does. Sometimes it's the thing I read two years ago that God brings to my mind today that said, you remember that thing we talked about back then? You're going to need that today. And I spend time with him every day obeying. My answer to God, I tell him every day, my answer to whatever you want me to do today is yes. Whatever step you want me to take, whatever choice you want me to make today, my answer is yes. Before I know what it is. And I learned that by God's word because this is the resource where every single lie that the enemy plants in your head can be combated with God's word. Every single one. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Um, in the armor of God, the sword of the spirit. It's one of the pieces of the armor of God. It says the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I have people tell me, the Bible doesn't help me. It doesn't help me in my daily decisions. It's just irrelevant. It doesn't do that. And I said, how often do you study it? Well, I've never actually read it. But it doesn't help me. Well, it doesn't help you because you don't spend time in it. It's the living, active word of God. All of that starts with obeying God's truth. But all of that starts with the biggest truth of all. And that's the truth about your need of salvation and redemption by the blood of Jesus. The biggest truth of all is saying, the Bible says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We've all missed the mark. And the wages of sin, the cost for that sin is death. That's what everybody prays. Death and separation from God forever. But God sent his son to live a perfect, sinless life, to die on the cross, to shed his blood on the cross for you. 
to pay that price that you couldn't pay. So that by trusting in Him, you get to heaven on His ticket. You get forgiveness because of what He did, not because of what you did. And when you trust Him, you say, I don't understand all that, but that sounds really good. I'm going for that. Everything changes. Because it says, when we believe and receive in John 1, it tells us that we then become children of God. We're adopted into His family. We're part of God's family. He becomes our Father, a loving Father that's full of grace. That's where it starts. In Romans 1, it talks about that. I want to read the message paraphrase of the first two verses just because it's so fresh and, and, and clear, and I think it's, it's where some of you are that, that could maybe use a little light. It says in verse 1, With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved, not being able to be right with God and have peace with God and live the kind of lives we want. Those who enter into Christ's, and it calls it the being here for us, they enter into Christ's being here for us. He came here for us, became one of us. When we enter into that, we no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. All of us have been there. Some of you are there now. It's gone on for days. Some of you, it's gone on for years. And you can't get out from under it. The truth is, you can You're under it because you've believed a lie. He says in the next verse, a new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. There is freedom because of that fresh wind and power of the Spirit when you accept Jesus as Savior and receive Him. Don't just believe the facts, but receive the person of Jesus. It says, He clears the air for you. Removes the fog, removes the low-lying black cloud. And if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, today's the day. You can do it right where, you, right where you're sitting. Right, you might, somebody might be listening to this next, you know, next Tuesday in their car as they're driving down the road. We have all of our sermons are online. They're all free. And I don't understand it, but they get downloaded hundreds of times a week. And every once in a while, it'll be like one gets downloaded 2,500 times. It's like somebody either really needed that or something weird happened. <laughs> but you might be listening to this in some weird place in your car or mowing your lawn or doing something and you realize, well, I would like to do that, but I'm not at church or I'm not this or I'm not that. God says right where you are, all you have to do is say, I believe that Jesus came and died for me and I'm receiving him as my own savior. I'm trusting that what he did on that cross was for me. I'm putting my faith and trust in him. And the Bible says when you do that, when you turn from sin, when you turn from your way of doing things and trying to earn salvation and turn to Jesus, it's a whole new life. Everything changes. Everything is new. I was going to stop there. But this morning, as I was having my quiet time, God said, there's one more thing I want you to share. I'm not late yet, so don't worry. This, this won't go long. It's just two verses. But I think it will help because it talks about two different 
types of people, people who haven't trusted Jesus yet and people who have. And it, and it helps us to get, how do we get through? How do we break those strongholds? And it's two verses that were very familiar to me, but God said, here's what I want you to share. Two things that the Bible does because the answer is in God's word. The answer is in the Bible. In 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, it tells us the Bible is good for us finding salvation and living that salvation out. It says Paul is writing to Timothy, and in verse 15, the end of verse 15, it says, um, he's saying, you've heard this since you were a little kid. He said, the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, God's Word. It said, the Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. Now, the Bible can't save you, but it can make you wise for salvation through faith. In Christ Jesus. It gives us the answer. It shows us Jesus. And so the Bible can give us that starting point of salvation to begin the freedom from those strongholds in your life. And the salvation comes by faith in Jesus. It doesn't come by anything you do, anything you could do, anything you have done, anything you will do. It comes through believing in Jesus and receiving Him as Savior. But that's not all it does. It also helps us in that new life once we get it. The next verse, verse 16, says all scripture. That means God's word, the Bible, all the whole thing, all scripture is God-breathed. I have to tell you, the word for God-breathed is my favorite Greek word. And I'm going to have you say it with me just because it's so fun to say. The word is theopneustos. You ready? Ready? Wait, all, all at once. Ready? Theopneustos. Isn't that cool? Theo, theo, theos is the word for God. And like pneuma, neustos is the word for breath. That's why this translation doesn't use the word inspired. It uses the word God breathed because that's literally what it says. The Bible is breathed out by God. It's not just a man-made book. And it is useful for four things. It is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness. And it would be really easy to read through that verse and go on to the next thing. This gives the answer to the repentance thing. Here's what it is. It's useful for teaching. What is teaching? Teaching is God shows you the path you're supposed to be on. So you need to picture the path. There's a path here. And the Bible is useful for teaching. It's useful for God saying, here's the path you're supposed to be on. That's a good thing. We don't always like it, but it's a good thing. It's also useful for rebuking or reproof, another translation says. Here's what that is. I got the path God shows me. The rebuking is when God shows me how I got off the path and into the ditch. That's what rebuking and reproofing is. That's what the Bible is good for. Showing me the path, but then when I get off the path and I fall in the ditch, it shows me that. And as I look into his word, I realize I thought I was on the path and I'm in the ditch. The ditch does not go the same place as the path. And so the next thing it does is correcting. It not only shows me how I got off the path and on the ditch, it's correcting how I get back on the path, out of the ditch, back on the path for my life. It says the Bible is useful for that. And then the fourth thing, it's useful for training. That's how do I stay on the path and stop falling in the ditch? 
So you may find yourself in, in any one of those places. God shows you the path to walk on and things are going good. That's great. I'm happy for you. But you better be in his word because if you're not, you're going to fall in a ditch and not even know it. It will show you when you fall in a ditch, but it will also help you get on the path again, the right path for your life, and it will keep you on the path so that you don't fall in a ditch again. So the answer is in God's word. I was going to bring that cup up here I mentioned last week, and I decided not to because some people were really interested in it, and I had a feeling that it may disappear and somebody may be caused to sin and steal my cup because it is one of a kind. Um, and until I get a bunch more made, um, that's not going to happen. But I've thought about that cup every day this week. I told you about the cup last week. Um, they give it to new believers um, at Saddleback, and we're going to just shamelessly steal their idea because it's so good. The cup has three words on it. It says, Jesus, coffee, repeat. That's, that's how I spent 43 years, every morning. Jesus, coffee, repeat. That's how we grow when we spend that time with Jesus in the Word. And you don't have to have coffee. You can have cappuccino or hot chocolate or tea or whatever you want. But you can repent later because coffee is the heavenly (laughs) beverage. But that's a different story. When you spend time every day with Jesus, every day with Him in His Word, it helps us break those strongholds of lies that some of us have been under for decades. Because he wants us to live in that freedom. He wants us to show us how to get out of the ditch and stay on the path. I'd like you to bow your heads as we pray. <coughs> Father, I know that many here struggle with uh, those strongholds. They struggle with areas that they feel that they're trapped in that they can't get out of. Maybe they don't even always recognize it. And the deception is so strong that they don't even see that they're stuck in that. It's not, a, it's not an obvious thing. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a, a, a lust. Maybe it's a pride. Maybe it's something that others could see in them, but they can't see in themselves because all they're seeing is the lie that they've been believing. My prayer is that you would help us to learn to repent, to learn to understand that those lies start the captivity. They, get, they, they build the foundation for, for a lifetime of lies. And that we can get out of that by turning from our way to your way and repenting and living under your amazing grace and living in obedience. That when you tell us to do something, our answer in advance will be yes. Whatever our next step is, whatever our next choice is, that whatever you tell us to do, our answer to you will be yes. And that we can learn to walk in that freedom that we can walk on the path for our life that we're supposed to, that will bring that meaning and purpose in our life as nothing else will. Father, thank you for loving us enough to send Jesus. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the closing song. And I hope that's true of you, that you can say, it will be my joy to say, yes, God. Whatever you're asking, it will be my joy to say yes. That's where real freedom begins. That's where it starts.